in your mind's eye, picture the scene with me for just a moment. In a large plaza, a large open area, there are hundreds of thousands of people gathered. Gathered to watch and hear the sights and the sounds of the spectacle as something very important is about to go down. Someone very important is about to address the crowd. There, clothed in royal garb, stands one man. One man who owns the adoration and the praise of hundreds of thousands of people. The most important man. And the people have come from all over, men, women, and children, workers and laborers, officials, politicians. And there gathered at this large mall, they stand in unison, And then the sound begins, the sounds of trumpets and horns and cymbals and harps. And while this amazing music plays, hundreds of thousands of people at once bow down in honor of this man. But not just him, in honor of this image, this idol, this statue that he has created in his name. You know the scene. You remember it. It's not different from what we've seen recently here in the United States. Last Sunday, hundreds of thousands of people gathered in Philadelphia at the sight of one man, and there they gathered, weeping and crying, exactly like that, except in ancient times. The kingdom is Babylon. The man is the king. And the king raises a golden statue. The story is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. You can follow along with me quickly. You might remember the story. Uh, The king had become so enamored with himself and his greatness that he decided to erect, raise up, create, build, have a golden statue in his image. And he paraded it to the sound of the trumpets, and he instructed everyone in his empire, which at this time was the greatest empire, the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth. And he said, at the sound of the trumpets, at the sound of the harp and of the lyre, when you hear the music and the fanfare, you will all bow down on knees and worship the image that I have built in my honor. You remember the story? It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. No? You don't know the story? No one? News to you? Yes? Okay. Well, you're looking at me a little strange. Oh, well, I'll continue. The king then said, play the music. And the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 3 that as the music began to play, thousands upon thousands bent their knee and bowed down, except for three Hebrew guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those names ring a bell? The Bible tells us that they did not and would not, and amongst the hundreds of thousands of people, they were not easily identified, just three singular figures unwilling to bend the knee to this great statue, but but there were people around them who said, hey, what is going on here? Who are these guys, and who do they think they are? And so they brought this message to the king, and it said to the king, uh, verse 12, there are some Jews whom you have in fact put, they said, O king Nebuchadnezzar, there are some Jews whom you have in fact put over the affairs of the government, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. These three young men would not bend the knee, would not bow down, would not even for fun show allegiance to this golden statue. And the report came back to the king, and the king was more than upset. The Bible says that he was furious with rage. You know what that's like? It's kind of like when somebody cuts you off in the freeway, and you have that look. You know the look, right? He was furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Following me, verse 13, chapter 3, book of Daniel. I know it's hard to find, but you can do it. So these men were brought before the king, verse 14. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods and worship the image of gold that I have set up? Is that true? Is it possible? The king probably said this like, I know this isn't true. I know this must be some kind of a joke. They stood before him and he says, now then, 
Verse 15, when you hear the sound, I love the king, is very complete in his explanation. When you hear the sound of the horn, of the flute, of the zither, of the lyre, of the harp, of the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well then, very good. We'll let it be. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. His preferred way of disposing with unwanted people. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? You have the scene now, right? Hundreds of thousands of people and these three brought before the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, you know the name, King Nebuchadnezzar, the most famous leader in the ancient world, a leader of the Babylonian Empire. He had everything at his disposal. He felt the world was his footstool, and so he raised this image. He's got these three boys in front of him, and he says, now then, I know this must be some kind of a joke. So out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to play the sound again. And when you hear it, you will fall down, and you will worship me. But if you do not, I will throw you into this burning oven. And then what God will save you from my hand. You remember the story, right? This is my favorite part. Three young Hebrew boys. They're probably a little older now, but here they're standing before the king. They look at him in the eye. That's the way I see it. They look at him in the eye and they say, O Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. I just love that. They're like, listen, hold it right there. We don't need to respond to your threats, because if you do throw us into this burning fire, the God that we serve is able, amen, and he will rescue us from your hand. I love that. But then, but then, but then comes this line, and I think he took a deep breath, looked at him in the eye. I think he made a little face, cocked his head a little bit, and said, but even if he does not save us, I want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods, and we will not worship the image of gold that you have set up. Can you believe the gravitas, the, how do I say, the courage, the stones these guys have, right? Hundreds of thousands of people bowing down before this man, and he says, God can save us. But even if he doesn't, I ain't going to bow down to you. This, 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 ow, I'm feeling it. Can you imagine that? To me, this is such a claim of, of, of faith and of trust and of bold courage. I just, when I grow up, I want to be like these guys, don't you? To stand in the face of evil and of threats and say, I'm not afraid of you. You cannot take this from me and I will not bend my knee. No matter what you do. Oh, so powerful. These are my Bible heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. To stand under threat of life and death, literally, and they say, so? We will not. And it's an amazing moment. And I dream of myself someday, honestly, I dream of myself someday being able to stare down the face of these kinds of threats and say, in the name of my God, I will not serve another. Don't you? I'm a pastor's kid, so forgive me. I grew up dreaming that I would be defending my faith when I got older. I did. I did. And maybe it was all those uh, second coming movies, but I thought someday they were going to persecute me and I was going to come to the end of the line and they were going to ask me questions like, are you a Christian and do you believe? And that I would have the courage to say, yes, I do, no matter the consequences, just like some people did. This week. I dream of that moment. I think of myself that I will do that like these guys. Don't you? The thing is, Are you sure? See, this tremendous story of courageous faith doesn't actually start here. You know where it begins? 
just a couple of pages back in another story that you may not want to hear, but we're going to read today. Daniel chapter 1. The Bible tells us when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were young or younger, they were taken from their land. They were <clears throat> kidnapped, taken as hostage from where they live, them and their entire generations, and they were brought to Babylon. And the king said, as after he conquered people and lands, and he conquered their particular, the Hebrews, he conquered them, he said, don't dispose of all of them, but look among you and find uh, the useful ones. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were among the useful ones that the king had pulled out from this uh, large group of hostages that he had taken. And he said, take the useful ones and we will train them and develop them and put them to work in my service. The king, rather than destroying all these resources, because people are resources, rather than casting it to the side when he conquered this nation, he said, no, I'm going to make the best available use. I'm going to take what they've got, but I'm going to mold it for my service. They were essentially enslaved. And the Bible tells us that, that, that from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and, Azar, and Azariah were taken. This is uh, chapter 1, verse 6. And the official gave them new names. You remember? Daniel, he said, your name will be Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael. He said, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But look at this, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told to Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king who has assigned your food and your drink. They are brought before <clears throat> Uh, the king, the king says, yes, take the best ones and put them in my service. Train them the way I would train uh, somebody who is coming up in my, in my service. Give them the foods that I prescribe as the right way to eat and the right way to drink and make them fit for my service. But Daniel decides, I will not defile myself. It's an interesting word you don't use ever, do you? Do you? Probably not. It's an interesting word that differentiates the action by saying this particular action makes me unclean, makes me unsacred, makes me dirty, defiled. And Daniel says, I cannot participate in the food and drink of the king. Why? The official says, no, no, look, I, that's the instructions that I've been given. And he says, and if I give you something else, why, you, why should he see you looking worse than other young men your age? He says, if I feed you a different diet, you're not going to be doing as well as the others here in the group. And the king would then take my head off because of you. But Daniel, verse 11, said to the guard to whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please, verse 12, read with me, please. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance to that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. He said, look, I know that you've been given these instructions, but put us to the test. Give us 10 days and feed us vegetables and water as opposed to the king's diet. And then test us and treat us according to what you will see. You know the story. The gentleman agreed. He says, okay, 10 days, not a big deal. And at the end of the 10 days, these young men, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams. And in the end of time, set by the king, they were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked to them. And he found none equal to these young men. None were their equal. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about the which the king questioned, he found them ten times better than anyone else in the kingdom. Amazing story, right? So what are the, what's the connection here? I want you to understand very carefully here. This moment of triumph that I love so much in the face of King Nebuchadnezzar's threat about dying, 
you know, the, their ability to stand courageously there doesn't begin there. It begins long before there. Long. It begins the day they decide not to defile themselves with the king's choice foods. So I have to ask myself a question, and I'm going to ask you a question. Does God care what I eat? Does God care about what I eat? Just got uncomfortable in here, right? We're beginning a series here called Here's to Your Health. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about health, and today we're talking about what we eat, our diet. Does God care about what I eat? Clearly in the story, this great act of faith that we see in the face of death begins much earlier when it comes to food choices. And God blesses them there and propels them to that moment. Do you know that in that moment, in the fiery furnace, they were thrown in, you remember the story, and Jesus himself stands among them. That actually is the precipitating moment to change the king's heart. And it all begins here in their choices of vegetables and water over the king's diet. Does God care about what I eat? Does God care about? And where would these guys get this idea about vegetables anyway? Like, who would in their right mind choose that? Given the opportunity to pick from the king's bounty, who would say, yeah, I'll have the water and the veggies? Who would choose that? Skip. Skip the more... Uh, you know, interesting uh, culinary feasts and go for the veggies and the water. Who would choose? Where would these guys get this idea? Well, it's actually rather simple because these guys are Hebrew men. And you know, because we have been studying here, they were born as a nation when God called his people out of Israel. Remember, we've been studying this whole summer how God called the Israelites, the descendants of Israel, out of Egypt and out of slavery, and he formed them into a nation. You recall because two weeks ago, we found this climactic moment where God said, and now, now that I have saved you from slavery, now that I have provided for you, protected you, been patient with you, I rain down food from on heaven. And by the way, what came down? Manna, right? God's provision. I, I, I provided and protected you all this way. And now, he says, will you take the next step? Can we take our relationship to the next level? Will you be my special people? There at the foot of Mount Sinai, God said, will you be my special people? In the verse that's in your bulletins for today, God said, now if you are careful to follow my decrees and my laws and the things that I command you, I will bless you. You will be for me a special people called a kingdom of priests. And he says, I will not bring upon you diseases like the ones the Egyptians had. God begins then to descend upon the mountain and he writes out with his hand the Ten Commandments where we know the expression of God's love. What's important here to know is that God does that after he saves them from slavery, after he provides and demonstrates. Then he says, now, now that I have over and over again pre presented evidence that I love you and care for you, will you then be my special people? The people say yes, and God says, this is what that means. You will represent me on the earth. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will represent my heart upon the earth, and you will bless the earth, and then, re and then bring and return praise back to me. God continues in the book of Exodus to lay out not just the Ten Commandments, but he continues to lay out lots of different uh, explanations for how to live a, a, a life, the everyday life. He talks about rules for hygiene. He talks about rules for, um, for the organization of peoples and the governance. And, and he talks about our diet. In fact, the majority of the book of Leviticus has to do with our health, what we eat and how we take care of our bodies. You know, Leviticus is an uncomfortable book to read and nobody chooses favorite verses from there. But I challenge you, God establishes this. And in the book of Leviticus, he lays down the groundwork for what we see lived in the life of these Hebrew guys. That's from where they got it. It was no secret. Besides, even before that, they knew the story. Their ancestors had told them that long before in the Garden of Eden, God had established for us how to live healthily. When he said to Adam, 
I give you these things for food. Every seed-bearing plant and every fruit that gives trees. I mean, every tree that gives fruit. It's not a secret. They were aware. Thus presented with this opportunity to choose the king's court's food or to choose God's instructions, they say, give us 10 days and put it to the test. And the Bible tells us that their faith and trust in God was rewarded. There was no one there in every matter. They were 10 times better than everyone else. Don't you want that? Does God care about what I eat? I submit to you today that he does. In fact, the promise that he made at at the foot of Mount Sinai is, I will give you these things so that you will be free from disease. He repeats that again in Deuteronomy after they've wandered through the desert, constantly testing God's patience and constantly not following his instructions, and they are now on the precipice of entering the promised land. God repeats that again in Deuteronomy when he says, remember that I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now then remember these things. If you are careful to follow my rules, my commandments, and the things that I've instructed you, I will make you prosper. I will prosper you, not just your children and your offspring. He says, you will all have kids. But I will prosper your property, your livestock, your herds, your lands, your crops. And he says, and I will keep you free of disease. Can you believe that? It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's chapter 7, verse 12. I'll read it to you quickly because we don't have much time. If you pay attention to these laws, he says, the Lord will keep his covenant of love with you. How? He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. And you will be blessed more than any other people. Your men and women will not be childless. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. And he will not inflict upon you the things that are inflicted on others. Do you know that God's promise for us as a people that these young men are claiming was established when he said, let's take our relationship to the next level. This is how you will represent me and I will bless you. And thus the instructions given in Leviticus are for our benefit and for our blessing and for the prevention of diseases. You saw those people in the video, right? 100 years old. One man that's 104, I believe, this year, 104. Can you imagine living to be 100? No? Anybody imagine living that long? I, I told some friends, my, there's, there's longevity in my family. My grandma lived to be just a little over 100. So I always tell my wife, I'm going to live forever. But the truth is, not the way I'm going. So let's just be honest. These are the facts. The facts is, the facts are that our culture, our nation, our people, and our community is suffering greatly under the burden of chronic disease. Chronic disease that is directly related to what we eat. God had a plan to keep us free from disease, and it had to do with instructing our diets. So how... Are these things connected? The World Health Organization says that these are major chronic diet-related diseases. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but let's all be on the same page together. Obesity, diabetes, which leads to increased risk of heart disease, kidney disease, stroke and infections, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, stroke, and all manners of cancer, colorectum cancer, breast cancer, kidney cancer, cancers of the mouth because of what we drink, throat, uh, esophageal, liver cancer, oral cavity cancers. It has to, a diet affects our osteoporosis and bone fractures, which is especially traumatizing for people who are of a certain age. And dental disease has to do with what we eat. These things are directly related. These diseases are directly related to what you and I eat every day. God had a plan, and he made a promise, and he said, I'm going to keep you free of diseases. How? By instructing us on how to eat and how to live. But, Pastor, what's the big deal with these things? I'm not suffering from these things. Well, I know you can't see it there, but you can at least see the red columns and the white ones. These are the leading causes of death in the United States. You want to guess what the number one is? Leading cause of death in the United States. Number one, heart disease. Heart disease. 
Number two, all manners of cancer. Number three, stroke. Do you know what they highlighted in red? This is from a TED Talk given by Jamie Oliver in 2012. They're highlighted in red because the diseases in red are directly related to our diet, to what we eat. You know what's at the bottom of that list? Homicide. In comparison, homicide versus heart disease. So while our nation grieves this week about gun control and how uh, gunmen can go into a college and, and take the lives of people and why we are up in arms, we are killing ourselves by the things that we eat. Uncomfortable conversation, I know, but we're going to have it. Just look at it. The fascinating thing is that we know this, that we know this, and that we as a community have known it. How significant is this? Heart disease <clears throat> is the number one cause of death worldwide. Heart disease, number one cause of death worldwide. Every year, 600,000 people in the U.S. die from heart disease. One in every four deaths comes from heart disease. 715,000 Americans have a heart attack every year. Is it important? Does it matter? Where does heart disease come from? What are our risk factors? This is, this is by, uh, by an organization called Healthline. You are at risk for heart disease. If you smoke, you eat a poor diet, high diet and saturated fat, you are 30% more likely to develop heart disease. If you don't exercise or you drink alcohol excessively. Things that we as an Adventist church have known for over 100 years. Right? Check this out. University of Purdue put out a study that said the same high-fat diet associated with heart disease also will increase the risk of developing certain cancers, including two that frequently strike Americans, colon cancer and breast cancer, the leading cancer killer of American women. This is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. People are going to be wearing pink. And while we want to raise awareness and bring research, the truth is the majority of these things are preventable based on the choices that we make with our diet. Stroke, also one of the leading causes of death. Do you know that on average every four minutes someone dies of a stroke? Americans paid about $73 billion in 2010 for stroke-related medical costs. I know this isn't a fun service, huh? You're all looking scared. Type 2 diabetes, 90 to 95% of all diagnosed cases of diabetes are type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes used to be called adult onset diabetes because it's directly related to your diet. It no longer is called adult onset diabetes. Do you know why? Because kids are showing up in increasing numbers with this diet-related diabetes. Speaking on behalf of the medical community, of which I am part because I married a doctor. <laughs> Diabetes is so difficult to manage and to handle, primarily because people refuse to see it as a problem. And refuse to believe that they have a direct impact on this disease based on the choices that they make. But you know what type 2 diabetes does? I know it's kind of hard to see, but I'll tell you. It will affect cerebrovascular disease, affects your brain, uh, retinopathy and blindness. You can go blind from it. Uh, oral health, severe periodontal disease, heart disease and stroke. Uh, it can ruin your kidneys, complications with birth and birth defects, ruin your nervous system, give you high blood pressure and hypertension, loss of sensitivity in your limbs, and one of the highest reasons why lower limbs are amputated is diabetes. Does that sound like fun to you? It's no wonder why God said, I want to keep you free of these things. I want to protect you from these things if you are careful to follow my counsel and my commands. Don't you want to avoid these things? Don't you? Look, I want to live a long life, but you and I well know we are living in a time in, in, in our society's history where our lifespans are increasing, but not always for the best. 
too often we live long, but it's under the agony and the suffering of chronic disease. Medical science has found a way to keep us alive, but not happy. Certainly not joyful or graceful. So what does God have in mind here? How is he going to keep us free from these diseases? I found an interesting um, study. Let me pull it up here. Sorry, Mike, it's not showing up. Oh, it is. Okay. I just didn't see it there. Um, An interesting study published by Yale University that says, well, what... Can we say what diet is best for health? I'll read it for you because I know it's kind of small. A diet of minimally processed foods close to nature, predominantly plants, is decisively associated with health promotion and disease prevention and is consistent with the salient components of seemingly distinct dietary approaches. This doesn't come from Avenist culture. It comes from a professor at university just last year. Look at this. Efforts to improve public health through diet are forestalled, not for want of knowledge about the optimal feeding of homo sapiens, but for distractions associated with exaggerated claims and our failure to convert what we reliably know into what we routinely do. Somebody say amen. Notice what this man says. Knowledge in this case is not as of yet power. Oh, that it would be so. I have never heard a scientist be so forlorn. Oh, that it would be so. He says, oh, that we would only convert our knowledge into action. See, these Hebrew boys in our story knew it, and they came to this moment of choice. And the Bible says that Daniel says, I will not go down that path. You know, it would have been very simple for them. It would have been even wise. Stay out of trouble. Follow the crowd. Do what everyone else is doing. It seems optimal. Certainly the king, they agree and believe, but they say, no, I trust my God's judgment rather than the king's judgment. A diet of minimally processed foods close to nature, predominantly plants. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound familiar to you? See, we've known this as a community because God gave us this special bit of information that if we were to trust God's original plan for our lives, we would be able to reap these original promised benefits to be free from disease and to represent God more clearly upon the earth and to bring blessing upon the earth. But we, like society, have had trouble converting what we reliably know into what we routinely do. And yet the evidence continues to mount that choosing a plant-based diet versus a non-plant-based diet is in our best interest. So here's to your health. Here's to your health. Do you want to be free of disease? Do you want to receive this blessing from God? One of the reasons why I think this is such a difficult topic for me I'll be honest with you. Can we be honest with each other? Are you, can, can I be honest with you? I grew up Adventist. I grew up in South America. And by the way, there are no plant-based diet people in South America. <laughs> My mom knew how to make gluten. She had gone to an, uh, an Adventist college, and there's this, like, gummy mass of stuff. But we hardly ate that. I'm from Bolivia. And, 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 and in Bolivia, we eat potatoes and meat. That's what we do. That's how we do it. And so I grew up unaware and unconcerned of these things. But when I came to the States and emigrated when I was 10, uh, there was always some person coming through the Spanish church, uh, creating a ruckus about this and that. But the one thing that I always found, don't tell anybody, right? The one thing that I always found difficult is how much shame and guilt was involved in the conversation. And this specific message that I got when I was growing up, and maybe I got it wrong, but it certainly felt like they were threatening me. And that they were saying to me, unless you change how you eat, you will not be saved. But I'm here to tell you something. Your diet can't save you. Your diet cannot save you. No. Salvation is found in the name of one person. The name is Jesus Christ. As Sheila clearly put it. It is what he did on the cross 
that saves us. We are saved by nothing else than by faith in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made. We are made righteousness by faith, not by what we eat. Our diet, your diet, cannot save you, but it might kill you. That's the truth. So why does this matter to us? Why should it be important to us? Because in the story that we've been reading this summer, what God does is he establishes clearly and unequivocally that he loves us long before we did anything to earn it, to deserve it. He saves the Israelites out of slavery and blesses them, patiently providing, protecting, and guiding. And long after he has established a track record of his faithfulness, then he says, now then, Will you be my special people? And the blessings God makes a covenant to give are dependent on our response to that. See, what we're talking about today is not a prerequisite to salvation. It is rather an invitation to respond to it. It is not about gaining heaven. It is about fulfilling our destiny upon the earth. It is about living out our purpose on the earth because we were made, the Bible is clear, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a generation of people, a community of faith that reflects and brings God's blessings upon the earth. And what better and more relevant blessing could we bring in this time and day than to free people from disease, to liberate people from the oppression of chronic disease? Researchers tell us very clearly that if we change our diet, these patterns can be reversed. The World Health Organization says it has been demonstrated that improved lifestyles can reduce the risk of progression to diabetes by 58% in four years. You can reverse the course of it. You can manage these effects of diabetes. Listen to this. Other population studies, the World Health Organization says, has shown that up to 80% of cases of coronary heart disease and up to 90% cases of type 2 diabetes could potentially be avoided through changing lifestyle factors. We can save the world. We can save close to 600,000 people in the U.S. alone every year. Don't you get it? It's about our destiny. It's about our purpose. It's what we were given. And I'll be honest with you. It was the first ever sermon I preached on health. Because who wants to talk about that? But I'm, I'm realizing some things every day when I, when I wake up and look at myself in the mirror. The years of invincibility are gone. See, when I was younger, just like many of you, I did whatever I wanted in terms of my diet. Ate whatever I wanted. It's fascinating because I think these young guys probably could eat whatever they want and still, you know, metabolize the whole thing. But they were making a conscious choice to follow God's path and principle rather than what they thought they could handle. But when I was young, I did it the other way. I've known this just like you've known this. I've always known that a plant-based diet was God's original plan. But I said, ah, I'm going to live forever. My wife always punches me for that one. I said, it's not going to hurt me. Someday I'll clean up my act. But here's the thing, friends. I'll just be honest with you. The things that I did 10, 20 years ago are catching up with me now. Right? And they're catching up with us as a society. And that's why younger and younger people are having heart attacks in their 30s and 40s. Because what we eat goes into our bloodstream and, and, into, our, and into our tissues and our organs and it interferes with the functions that God designed them for. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? I'm not. I really am not. But we got to face these facts. If we want to represent God, listen, what's the point of representing God in name and singing praises while we are destroying our bodies? What kind of testimony are we offering to the community where, we, where they are suffering and we bring no alleviance to that? It doesn't matter how many evangelistic campaigns? 600,000 people a year from heart disease alone. And God is saying, I'm going to bless the earth through you. That's the promise he made to Abraham. I will bless you, your descendants, and the whole world will be blessed through you. Here's how. We have this special privilege of following God's instructions and to share that. And the best way we can share it is through our living. It's not something that we have not known, but I want you to check this out. 
The American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, not an Adventist organization, really recently did a research review and found that, listen to this, cross-sessional data suggests that vegetarian Seventh-day Adventists have a lower risk of diabetes, uh, hypertension, and arthritis than non-vegetarian Seventh-day Adventists. This is a cross-sectional study about us, our particular faith community. Those are the facts. The choice is ours. That's the facts. <clears throat> so what do we do? What do we do in response? Here's my proposal. Let's take some action. If we believe the Bible is true, if we believe the stories, if we want to be heroes of faith, let's take some action. Number one, read your Bible. Leviticus, y'all. I'm not even on Twitter, but y'all know what's up. Go home and read it today, and it will blow your mind. It will blow your mind. How careful and caring and kind God has been in giving us instructions. Number two, pray for clarity and for courage. There's nothing that we can do without God's clarity and his courage. Number three, make a plan. The reason we don't translate action, uh, information into action is because we don't have a plan. We just go, amen, pastor, amen. That's not a plan. All right, all right, I hear you. Uh, good, good, I'm going to be healthy. Not a plan. A plan is direct, distinct. It is written out. It is spelled out what you're going to do. I'm not asking you or challenging you today to make Wholesale changes that are impossible to make, but at least make a plan. Do something. You know what's funny? As I'm talking to you and you're looking back at me, I know you know what your plan needs to be. I know that a majority of you have been to the doctor recently, and the doctor has said one of these things. you got to lower your salt intake. Somebody say amen. You know it's true. A, a doctor has said to you, listen, you got to stop eating high-fat foods because your cholesterol level is way too high. Somebody has said to you, you got to cut out sweet treats. you got to reduce your sugar intake because your body is headed towards type 2 diabetes. You, it's no secret. You know. And you walk away saying, I'm going to get a second opinion. <laughs> Make a plan. Make at least one change in the name of your descendants. In the name of the people God sent us to bless. Even if you don't do it for yourself. Do it for the God who put you on this earth and gave you this destiny. Number four, find a partner. Tell somebody what you're trying to do. Find a partner. Too often, the spiritual battle we wage on our own and we fail miserably. Find a partner. Find somebody you trust and say, here's what I'm trying to do. And now, make a plan and develop new habits. They say that it takes 21 days to form a new habit. 21 days to form a new habit. Three weeks. You got three weeks? Three weeks. So here's my challenge to you. <clears throat> here's a few things, a few things that you can try to do on your plan. Number one, keep a food journal. I know you guys like the Instagram, Snapchat, all that stuff. When you sit down to eat, take a picture of what you're eating and then look at it and see what you're eating. Some of us think, ah, it's, my diet's not that bad. Well, look through your Instagram and then, we'll, and then take stock. Keep a food journal so you understand how much and what kinds of food you are taking in. I know it's kind of small. Number two, plan a weekly menu. Think ahead in advance of what you want to eat and prepare for that. Shop when you're full. Don't go when you're hungry. You're going to buy stuff you have no business eating. Next one, choose fresh foods over processed. Add new vegetables to your meals. Eat at regular times. If you eat at regular times, you will avoid creating an upset rhythm in your life. Guilty as charged. Remove all snacks from your car and office. You know who this comes from? Little old lady named Ellen G. White. She said, too often we have stuff in our vehicles that we mindlessly eat. Oh, my goodness. No, just me? Okay, just me. I'll, just me. While we're driving, I dig in and I do this. Choose water instead of soda or juice. Things that you don't limit salt in your cooking, reduce meat consumption, or remove it entirely. A, a diet in high saturated fats is is a high risk factor for coronary heart disease. Or be adventurous, go vegan. It's all fun and games until somebody says vegan, and then <laughs> <laughs> right, right. 
Oh, you're all on board. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to make a plan, Govi. What? Say what? Go vegan. Go vegan. Why not? I'm challenging you. Take a 22 day challenge with me. Start today. Start at sunset tonight until sunset the 25th of October. Go home today. Go wherever you're going now. Go to your restaurants, wherever you go. Eat whatever you want to eat. And then this afternoon, and then this afternoon, you pray about it. And you ask God, God, what do you want? What new habit do you want me to develop? Take a 22-day challenge. I'm challenging you, and I'm asking my family to take the challenge with me for the next 22 days that I will make a difference in my diet. If I want to represent God, if I want to represent God, I've got to make this a priority in my life. Listen, friends, I'm going to be honest with you. For many of us, myself included, that plate of food has become our idol. It drives us. You know what I want to admit to you is that when I'm stressed, I find comfort in the food that I eat. Rather than to trust the comfort that God provides for me, I look for something to make me feel better, and that is damning me to disease. How about you? We cannot, we cannot fall for the empty promises of this world's diet. So go vegan. Hang with me. I know you're all headed for the exit doors. But here we go. Just, just hang with me. By the way, no one's keeping score. This is voluntary. I'm just offering it to you. Take the challenge. Don't take the challenge. I don't care. It's your life. It's your purpose. It's your destiny. Take it up with the man upstairs. Somebody asked me, oh, you're not going to say vegan. Why vegan? I'll tell you why. I'm going to be real honest with you. Earlier this summer, I got a notice from the water department, Otai Water Department, where they said to me, listen, you're consuming way too much water in your household, your, your plants and all this stuff. You've got to cut down water. We're going to raise your rates sky high. You too? Anybody else with me? So I got lawn that is like brown. I can't water my plants. I can't fill up my pool. And I'm doing everything I can. Get out of the shower, kids. Get out of the shower. And I'm installing this. Are you with me? you got to stop when you're brushing your teeth. I'm doing all that. And I'm thinking, wow, the, the short is water shortage, shortage in, in, in California. Everything's drying up. Lake Mead's got no water. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and, and then I, uh, I watched this. Can I have the sound, please, for the video? One quarter pound hamburger requires over 660 gallons of water to produce. Here I've been taking these short showers trying to save water and to find out just eating one hamburger is the equivalent of showering two entire months. So much attention is given to lowering our home water use, yet domestic water use is only 5% of what is consumed in the U.S. versus 55% for animal agriculture. That's because it takes upwards of 2,500 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef. I went on the government's Department of Water Resources Save Our Water campaign, where it outlines behavior changes to help conserve our water, like using low-flow shower heads, efficient toilets, water-saving appliances, and fix leaky faucets and sprinkler heads, but nothing about animal agriculture. When I added up all the government's recommendations, I was saving 47 gallons a day, but still, that's not even close to the 660 gallons of water for just one burger. I wanted to see if I could somehow talk with the government about this. Just 660 gallons of water for one cheeseburger. Does it add up to you? It's a movie called The Cowspiracy. It's on your Netflix account for free. A Leonardo DiCaprio uh, special cut. Go home, watch it tonight. I realized, wait a minute, what's happening here? Do you know that animal agriculture, that, that is what we do to raise animals to eat, has such a significant impact on the earth. We consider ourselves uh, stewards of this earth. God says it is my footstool. It all belongs to me, but I want you in charge of it. But did you know that Californians use 1,500 gallon of waters per day, but close to half of that is associated with meat and dairy products? It takes 2,500 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef. 477 gallons of water to produce one pound of eggs, 900 gallons of water for one pound of cheese, and 1,000 gallons of water for one gallon of milk. Not only that, uh, uh, animal agriculture, as they call it, you know, raising livestock to eat, affects all kinds of things uh, like climate change, global greenhouse emissions. The, the animals produce so much more than the entire transportation sector. Here I'm getting a new muffler and have to do all these checks. But, but animals produce more greenhouse emissions 
the animals that we eat, not the wild ones, the animals that we eat, then the entire uh, transportation department, they're responsible for deforestation. 91% of the Amazon destruction is to create grazing lands for cattle and other uh, livestock crops. <clears throat> in the ocean, in the ocean, for every one pound of fish that are caught, there are five pounds of other fish that are discarded as bykill, including sharks, whales, and dolphins. You want to save the whales? Stop eating fish. Land use. Do you know that in 1.5 acres of land, we can build, we can raise 37,000 pounds of plant-based food or 375 pounds of meat? What are we doing as stewards of this earth? Waste. Waste from a dairy of 2,500 cows equals the waste of a city of 411,000 people. Cows poop a lot. Every minute, 7 million pounds of excrement are produced by animals raised for food in the U.S. alone. And you know where that poop goes? Into the rivers, into waters, into oceans. And they create dead zones where no life can grow. Crazy, right? So do it. Take action. Go watch this movie, Cowspiracy, and take the 30-day vegan challenge. I know my friends are like, you're going to make me buy something. But look at that. It says click here to join for free. I did. I did. They have videos, recipes, and stuff. And you're like, Pastor, you're crazy. You're crazy. I am. I'm crazy about God. Take the 30-day challenge. You're like, I can't do it, Pastor. Okay, fine. How about the 7-day vegan challenge? Absolutely free. 7dayvegan.com. You'll have a plan, a guide, a recipe. Look, I'm not asking you to kill yourself. I'm asking you to save yourself from disease and reverse the course of chronic disease, not only in yourself, but in your family, in our communities. So will you do it? Will you be crazy enough to take the challenge with me? Take some action, friends. This is about our purpose. It's not about getting into heaven. Absolutely not. We are saved by Christ and Christ alone. It is his blood that pays the price for our sins. But know this, for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we were bought with that price. And this body, it doesn't belong to us. We are the temple of God. We belong to him. What better way to honor him than to follow his counsels on how to live?